Well, what a blessing, isn't it, to be back in the house of the Lord together, worshiping, singing together. We have had the wonderful joy this morning of singing a psalm right out of our psalm book. And uh, then we sang a great hymn, Immortal, Invisible, Only Wise God. And then we sang a newer song that the Spirit has given to the church. And so this morning as you worship, you worshiped across the broad spectrum of truth that God has given to us as we sing His Word together. And as we pray through that Word together, even as Pastor Brian called us this morning to worship around the Word, and now the great joy of sitting under the Word together, both you and I, as we listen in to what God has given us this morning out of the book of Nahum. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Nahum. Uh, It might seem strange, we've been turning to Jonah for the last 11 weeks together, and this morning we now turn to the book of Nahum. And I said to you last Sunday, as we say goodbye to Jonah today, we're going to say goodbye to Jonah by looking at what ultimately happened at the end of the story. We saw the beginning of the story in the book of Jonah, where God sent Jonah to the very heart of the Assyrian Empire, one of the great cities that actually ended up becoming the capital of Assyria, uh, and in which the king of the entire country chose as his dwelling place. And there he built great temples to the god Asher, the, the god of Assyria, and the goddess Ishtar. And you saw pictures of some of that when we were making our way through uh, our series on Jonah. And one day God reached down and uh, touched the heart of his faithful servant Jonah. We met Jonah in 2 Kings chapter 14. Jonah had been ministering faithfully to the people of God in the land of promise. And he had ministered particularly during a very difficult time in the life of the northern kingdom, a time of great wickedness, a time of great disobedience, a time of great hardness in the heart of the people. And God sent Jonah to prophesy to King Jeroboam II. And when Jonah prophesied, the text of Scripture says that the king did not hear him. The king did not listen. And yet God, through the ministry of Jonah, blessed the land of Israel abundantly and sort of in an almost um, unexplained way. Of course, we know the Lord's at work in all of this. God began to expand the borders of Israel, even during this time of disobedience. And the only answer that we could come to for all of that was God's unmerited mercy that he showed to his people in the days of Jonah. And God's promise to leave his people a heritage. And all of that we looked at when we began our journey. And so all of this is going on in the land of Israel and in the life of Jonah and this unmerited and this unrestricted mercy from God is flowing right around Jonah. And God says to Jonah, now I have another assignment for you. I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach a preaching to them. That's literally how the text stated it. I want you to go and I want you to preach a preaching. And when you preach the preaching to them, uh, the reason that the preaching that I'm giving you needs to be preached to them in this great city, and we looked at how Jonah uses the word great in the book, in this great city there has been great wickedness that has come up against me. And so there is a preaching that I want you to preach. And we noted that Jonah got up in chapter 1, and he began his journey in the opposite direction. And he went right to the Timbuktu of his day. And we don't understand exactly what drove Jonah until we get to chapter 4. And you'll remember the story of Jonah. He takes off, he gets on a boat, he heads to Tarshish, and then God begins to pursue this prodigal prophet. And we finally see God reaching down into the very depths of the ocean, into the very depth of the belly of a great fish where this prodigal prophet is praying and turns him and shows great mercy to Jonah. And from that fish, Jonah says to the Lord, salvation belongs to you. Salvation is of the Lord. That great text 
that sort of became the heart of the whole book. And so Jonah says to the Lord, I will go to the temple, I will pay my vows, and I will go to Nineveh and preach the preaching that you want me to preach. And so he does. And he gets to Jonah, or he gets rather to Nineveh, and he goes into the city, and he preaches the preaching, and one of the most amazing revivals in all of Scripture takes place. Jonah gives a half-hearted attempt. I mean, the city's three days in width and breadth, and he's supposed to go throughout the city. He goes one day, he preaches a very brief message, and he's done. And God takes that message. God uses that preaching. And he opens the eyes of the Ninevites. And he grants them something. He grants them repentance. And we noted that the scriptures really do teach this, that God grants repentance. Have you ever thought about that in your life? Sometimes we take it for granted that we can just repent anytime we want of any sin that we want to repent. And I'll just put it off because, you know, there'll be another time. I can do this tomorrow. But the scriptures actually speak in terms of God granting repentance. And that's why constantly throughout the scriptures in both testaments, God exhorts His people to respond while there is yet today. Today is the day of response. Today is the day of repentance. And so we learn from Jonah that whatever God is doing in your life, whenever God does that, that is the time to respond. That's when God wants you to respond. So God opens the eyes of the Ninevites. He grants them repentance And then he grants them or gives them faith. And the same terms that are used to describe the great faith of Abraham that was counted to him for righteousness are used to describe what happened in Nineveh when the people turned and believed God. And so this great revival happens. And Jonah, of course, is not happy about this. And he goes out to the hillside on the outskirts of the east side of Nineveh. He builds a little booth. And, uh, and he has a talk to God, and God has a talk to him. And years later, Jonah, writing about this, is inviting us in. He says, listen, I want you to come, and I want you to sit on the hillside next to me, and I want you to listen to the schooling God gave me. I want you to listen in on what God had to do in my life so that you can learn from that and allow God to do that in your life. And God had to teach Jonah that the greatest mercy that was required was not the mercy that Nineveh needed, it was the mercy that Jonah needed. Because the hardest heart in the book was not the pagan hearts of the sailors or the pagan hearts of the Ninevite idolaters. The hardest heart in the book was Jonah's. And you know, sometimes that's true of me, isn't it? Sometimes in my relationships, sometimes... In my friendships, sometimes in my ministry uh, circles, I find myself to have the hardest heart. I dictate to God what He can do and what He can't do and who He can do it with. And, And I know that if I'm doing that as a pastor, I'm sure that there are times in your life where that happens to you. And Jonah is actually very forthright about this, isn't he? He looks over at us and he says, let me just tell you what I told the Lord. I told the Lord, I knew that when I, the minute you talked to me, I knew that this was going to happen. I knew that if I came to Nineveh and preached the preaching, that you were going to show mercy. And Jonah, throughout the book in chapter 2, Uh, and even in uh, his comments in chapter 4, references some of the greatest theological texts in the Old Testament that speak to God's character. And Jonah says, I was afraid, based on what I know about you, that this is exactly what was going to happen. And so, this morning, I want to ask you what happens when the thing you fear comes to pass. Because everything that Jonah feared happened. He was afraid that God would show mercy to the Ninevites and it happened. But if you remember, the reason that he was afraid that God was going to show mercy to the Ninevites is because of what he believed the Ninevites would one day do to his own people. 
And by the time we get to Nahum, Nahum is writing about a hundred years after this great revival that we've spent the past 11 Sundays looking at, and everything that Jonah feared has come to pass. A hundred years later, the entire northern kingdom has been obliterated. You can read about this starting in 2 Kings chapter 15, and you can read all the way through chapter 19, and you can see that generations after Jonah's revival, the kings of Assyria and the kings of Nineveh began to come into the land that God had promised his people and the land that Jonah had so faithfully ministered to, and they had begun first to oppress and then to destroy and then to depopulate. And over the course of four different Assyrian kings, great tribute had to come out of the northern kingdom. And there was great political intrigue as the different kings of Israel began to try to figure out, what are we going to do with this oppressive nation that keeps coming and taking our life away from us by taking all of our goods and all of our wealth? Maybe we should go down to Egypt. Maybe Egypt will help. And the king of Assyria sent a message back and he says, don't go down to Egypt and think they're going to help you. They're like a broken reed. That's like putting all of your weight on a broken board. And sure enough, by the time we get to Nahum, all of this has happened. A king named Shalmaneser has come into the northern kingdom and extracted incredible tribute and has taken people from the northern kingdom as far away as to the cities and the villages, all the way in what is now modern-day Persia, what you would know as modern-day Iraq and Iran. All of a sudden, people that had been in the land God gave to Abraham are gone. And by the time we get done with that king, all of the ten northern tribes have been deported, and the writer of kings says they are there to this day. And the only thing left are two small tribes in the south, the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of David that God had given promises to. And what about those tribes? And you'll remember in about 701 BC, a king named Sennacherib. This is the Assyrian king that we're most familiar with. Sennacherib brought his entire army into the very northern part of the land and made his way all the way down to the city of Jerusalem and besieged the city of Jerusalem. And on his way, he defeated, destroyed, and burned 46 major cities that were armed cities in Hezekiah's kingdom. Think about what would happen this morning if you woke up and you listened to the news and there were 46 American cities in the south that had been destroyed as an army made its way to Greenville to surround it. Atlanta fell. Savannah fell. Augusta fell. Miami fell. Orlando fell. You're like, what is going on? Pelzer fell. I had to get Pelzer in there. And you woke up this morning and you began to realize that all of these cities are gone and the enemy is at the gates. And that is exactly what happens. And the king of Assyria has a wicked counselor, a worthless counselor. He's actually mentioned in the book of Nahum. And this worthless counselor is a military general who's incredibly smart and incredibly... uh, militarily successful in all that he does. His name is Rabshakeh. And you can read his story in 2 Kings 18. And he comes out and he taunts the Israelites. And he says two things to them. He says, don't trust in the words of King Hezekiah. When Hezekiah tells you to trust your God, don't trust Hezekiah. Hezekiah is lying to you. And then he comes out even more boldly and he says, and don't trust your God when he says he'll deliver you. Don't trust those words. Think about Assyria. Think about what you know about us. Has there been any land 
that has survived us coming in and attacking? Has any God of any land been able to stand successfully against our God? And the Assyrian God's name was Asher. Asher was an early founder of the land of Assyria, all the way back in Genesis 10. And so there is this long history to this land. And here is this general, and he's giving counsel to the people of God. And he's saying, do not believe the words of Hezekiah when he tells you to trust in the Lord. And don't believe what God has said to you. God is deceiving you, and Hezekiah is deceiving you. You remember that story? All of this has happened. Jonah would be standing up here shaking his head this morning and going, I knew it. This is exa- See, now this is exactly why I didn't want to go to Nineveh. I didn't want to go to Nineveh because God was going to show mercy to these people and instead of destroying them, and he could have cut them off at the knees right there, and none of this mess would be going on. And so I want to ask you this morning, have you ever found yourself in a place where God has asked you to do something so clearly, and yet as you think about the thing God has asked you to do, there's great fear. Man, if I do this, this, this is going to happen, that's going to happen, and this over here is going to happen, and then you come over here and you're like, maybe I'll just, maybe I'll look at it from this perspective, and you're sort of unpacking everything, and you're looking at everything, and no matter which way you go, there are things that are so devastating down the way that you know if I go down that path, or maybe I could go down this path, but God says, no, I want you to go down this path, and you know if you go down this path, there are great things that you would rather not face. You ever been there? I know I have. I think if we're all honest, we all have. And then you go down the path, and the thing you feared happens. That's why Nahum is in our Bible. The book of Nahum is the answer to all of that fear. As you think about the book of Nahum, Nahum is actually going to help us think through how to navigate what happens when things that we fear come to pass. And we can maybe sort of jump into Nahum this way, asking ourselves, how is it that a nation like Assyria that a hundred years earlier received this incredible gift from God. God opened their eyes, God granted them mercy, God God granted them faith, God granted them repentance. How did a nation that received all of this mercy come to a place where in the book of Nahum, they are the special objects of God's wrath and God's anger? And is it possible that that could happen in our own lives, and in our own families. We have been the special object of God's favor, have we not? And sometimes I think we assume that just because we go to a good church, and we have good teaching, and we have all the good things that we enjoy, that somehow four generations and now we just assume that all of this mercy is still going to be present. And Nahum is in our Bible to remind us that every generation must embrace the mercy of God for themselves. Every generation must experience the grace of God, the relentless grace of God, the scandalous mercy of God. Every generation must experience that for itself. My kids are not going to go to heaven on my mercy Your kids and grandkids are not going to go to heaven because God showed mercy to you. They are going to go to heaven because God shows mercy to who? To them. And so Nahum is an important component in our book. How are we to understand this puzzling little book? When I started looking into the book of Nahum, I immediately began looking at different commentaries and every commentary had the same basic statement. This is one of the most troubling books in the Old Testament. Oh, great. I have a whole week to figure this out. And then Wednesday comes along, and I'm like, man, i got got to figure something out here. Wednesday, you're like, for for those of you who, you know, think pastors just kind of sit at home and go play golf and hang out and drink coffee. No, no, no. We are like, like... getting our pickaxes out and our shovels and our hard hats and we're going down into the mine that Nahum dug going, what in the world were you thinking digging here? 
This makes zero sense. And all the commentaries are going, that's exactly what you should be thinking because this is the hardest soil in the Old Testament. There's no gems in here and we can't figure it out. And I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do with this? And then, you know, it's Thursday and I'm like, Lord, you have got to start opening this book up because tomorrow's Friday and there's stuff going on this weekend. There's like weddings going on and I can't name everybody and say, well, I can't come to your wedding. Why not? Name. And then I got to get up on Sunday morning and we can't have a singspiration. We already had seven of those, so we can't have another one. <laughs> Correct? So what do you do with Nahum? And you know what I found out? Jonah was absolutely no help. Like, Jonah, you were so helpful in your book. What's going on? Jonah's like, that's past me. I'm gone. I'm already in the presence of the Lord. Me and the Assyrians that did get saved, we're singing praises up here. You figure it out. So you know where I found some help? I found some help from Paul. Paul in the New Testament. Who would have thought? So let me, let me show you the help that Paul gives us. Romans 11 has a very interesting statement in verse 22. It says this, Note then. In other words, Paul says, Now look, everything I'm talking about, I want you to pay special attention. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in His kindness. Paul says, look, if you understand Nahum, you need to pay attention to two things. You need to pay attention to the kindness of God, and you need to pay attention to the severity of God. And I opened up the book of Nahum, and I read the very first line and it's like all of a sudden Paul came right to mind. Listen to the opening line in verse 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh. An an oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Now there, there are a couple of words here that I think are going to be very important for us. The word oracle is a word that shows up in the Old Testament every time God is about to pronounce a sentence on somebody. It's it's sort of like the word woe. So whatever God is going to announce through Nahum, it isn't going to be pleasant. And then secondly, it's a vision that Nahum is supposed to write down in a book. This is the only minor prophet that you see described this way. And, and the word vision gets us thinking about maybe the vision in Daniel 7 or maybe the book of Revelation where a prophet is given a vision of something that is yet to come. There is some great thing that God is announcing that he is going to do for his people and it involves Nineveh and it has to do with comfort, kindness, and it has to do with severity. You see, where do you get that? Well, it's interesting, the word Nahum comes from a word that means God comforts. Some people think it's a shortened version of the word Nehemiah, because the idea here in the word comfort is not God sort of patting people on the back and going, there, there, it's going to be okay. Just, I know, I know it hurts, and so, but you know, just... Just uh, hang in there. That's not the idea. The idea behind comfort is that God comes alongside and strengthens. So there is something that God is putting in this book about His kindness that strengthens. But then there's the word Elkosh, and there's a whole lot of ink that has been spilled about where this, where this is and what is this and And uh, so I got looking in all of that, and I I discovered that the word Elkosh actually means God is hard. God is severe. So right at the front end of the book, if you're kind of listening in carefully to what God is saying to us through Nahum, Paul is actually right. He's saying, I want you to pay attention to the comfort that God gives And the comfort that God gives has to do with the severity that God is about to bring on Nineveh. And so with that in mind, I want to ask the question, how in the world do we take comfort from the severity of God? 
Because that's not what I expected. I mean, Jonah has already shown me about the kindness of God toward his enemies, and that was incredibly encouraging. And I think I, think I speak for all of us this morning when I, I say, look, I am so thankful for the journey that we had together where Jonah was our guide. And we learned about the unbelievable mercy of God. But now Nahum is our guide, and Nahum is saying, now I want to show you the other side of God. I want you to see his severity, and you should take as much comfort and strength and joy from that as you did from what we learned in Jonah. And so how does God use the book of Nahum to strengthen us? Well, let me give you a few things quickly this morning, and, uh, and we'll wrap up our time together in the book of Jonah. So here's the first thing I think that God does He assures us in the book of Nahum that in the face of all the evil that is going on around us and maybe even to us, God will comfort His people. God comforts His afflicted people. And you can see this in the first eight verses of the text. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. This is verse 2. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and He keeps wrath for all of His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. And then He talks about His way. And as he describes his way, he talks about the whirlwind and the storm. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry, dries up all the rivers. You remember when God did this in the past for Israel? He dried up a sea and he used that dried seabed to carry his people to safety. And then he used the waters of that sea to drown one of the greatest enemies of God's people in the Old Testament, the Pharaoh of Egypt and all of his armies. And then do you remember when he was leading Joshua to go into the promised land and there was a great river in flood season in the way and God dried up the river and allowed his people and the army of Israel to go across and in a miraculous victory gave them the walled city of Jericho. And so there are allusions to things like this. And this is why at the end of verse 5, the heavens uh, and the world who dwell in it all quake before this God. And here's the question. Who can stand before His indignation? And who can endure the heat of His anger? And the answer is no one. God comforts His people because of His character. He comforts His people because of His power, by means of His power. Name is going to make sure, as you think about God's comforting people, that you remember God's character, His goodness, and His righteousness. He talks about God being a jealous and avenging God, and wrathful, and He takes vengeance on His adversaries. He is slow to anger and great in power. But when that anger is finally aroused, He will by no means clear the guilty. He goes all the way back to that great text, that God gave to Moses when Moses said, God, I want to know who you are. I want want to understand you. And God has used His character and He's used His power and He's used His path faithfulness to His people to comfort them in the middle of all the wickedness that they're enduring. And then there is a future plan that God has for His people. Look at verse 12 in the text. Thus saith the Lord, and he's now talking about the Assyrians. Though they are full of strength and many, they will be cut down. And then he talks to Israel. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And then look down at verse 15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news. The word good news there is our word gospel. Who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again will this worthless one pass through you. He is utterly cut off. And then verse 2 of chapter 2. The Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. God is comforting His afflicted people. And you know, as you serve the Lord, 
And as you take that path that God is showing to you that is full of fear for you, and when some of those fears actually come to pass, Nahum would say to you, now listen, in the middle of all of that, even when that involves affliction from God as He trains you up and as He disciplines you as, as a child, even in all of that, remember something. God comforts His afflicted people. These people that were being afflicted, Israel and Judah, were being afflicted because of their sins. If you go back to 1 Kings 17, or 2 Kings rather, 17, and you start reading, God is actually, and this is right in the middle of all of these Assyrian kings that are coming, and God's, it's like God puts everything on pause, and God says, now I want you to understand why I'm letting all of these kings in, and I'm letting them do all of these things to my people. And he comes over here and he says, now let me tell you what's been going on in the hearts and in the lives of my people. And it's like he opens up a door and he lets us kind of peek in to what's actually been happening in Israel. And God is saying to them, I want you to see all of the idolatry here. I want you to see all of the covenant breaking that's been going on here. I want you to see all of the rebellion that has been going generation after generation, king after king after king. I want you to see everything that they've been doing. They have been taking the children that I give them and they have been sacrificing them to the fire God. This has been happening in Israel by my people. And I have sent to them prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet and they would not heed the words of the prophet. They would not repent And so I have sent to them the Assyrians to discipline them. You realize something? If you're a true child of God, if I'm a true child of God, and we resist God, God will speak to us, and God will speak to us, and God will speak to us. That's why Nahum says he is slow to what? He is slow to anger. You may be sitting here this morning and saying, well, you know, I've been engaged in this for a long time, and nothing has happened. You know why it hasn't happened? Because of God's what? Mercy. God is slow to anger. And 1 Kings 17 is a chapter in your Bible that you ought to go home and read this afternoon. And you ought to just pull out a highlighter. And you ought to just highlight all the things that you can think of in that chapter that speak to God's broken heart over what is happening in the lives of His people and finally what He has to do. But even in the middle of the discipline, even in the middle of all of this that God is permitting to go on to discipline His children, God comforts His people. God comforts His people. I want you to notice, secondly, that God will vanquish His arrogant enemy. Look at verse 14 of chapter 1. That's the second big idea in Nahum. God comforts afflicted people even when He's doing the afflicting. But secondly, God will vanquish His arrogant enemy. The Assyrians will not carry the day. The Lord has given a commandment about you. This is verse 14. He's talking now to Assyria. God has given a commandment. No more will your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Now drop down, if you will, to verse 13 of chapter 2. And notice this statement by God. Behold, I am against you. I will burn your chariots. The sword will devour your young lions, in other words, your generals. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers will no longer be heard. Look at verse 5 of chapter 3. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And you may want to just underline that little word hosts and put the little English word armies next to that. This is God's going to war name. In other words, God is looking at the Assyrians that he showed mercy to a hundred years earlier and he is saying to them, you have now become the enemy of my people. You have now exalted your gods again and I am going to vanquish you. I am against you. You say, well, man, that's, that's Old Testament language. you remember James chapter 4? The Bible says God opposes the what? The proud. 
And the word oppose there is a military term that in essence shows God showing up to battle and he brings all of his might and all of his power and all of his armies. Now if you lived in the ancient world, in Jonah's day and in Nahum's day, there was no greater military might than Assyria. Her chariots were legendary. Her archers were, were world-renowned. Her, her generals struck fear in the heart of everybody. They literally marched through the earth and captured cities and deported people. Never until the reign of Alexander the Great was a nation so powerful as Assyria. And God says to them, I want you to know something, I am against you. It's a very fearful thing, isn't it, to find ourselves on the opposite side of God? And that's exactly what God says to us in James when He says, listen, I oppose the proud. I oppose the proud. James is writing to Christians. He's writing to believers. Name is writing to a pagan nation worshiping false gods. But sometimes that same general thing can happen even in our own hearts as we elevate something to the status of an idol. Jason uh, in his comments, re- reminded us that our hearts are a factory that makes what? Idols. An idol is anything that you worship more than God. It's something that is so important to you that you are willing to disobey God to get it or to keep it. That's an idol. It might be a friend. It might be a possession. It might be a pleasure. It might be something that gives you security. But whatever it is, if it matters more to you, if getting it or keeping it is worth so much to you that you are willing to disregard God, deny God, or disobey God, then you find yourself in the place where James is saying, God will oppose you. And here in Nahum, we see that God will vanquish His arrogant enemies. And then notice, thirdly, that He will vindicate His honor. Look at verse 7 of chapter 1. The Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. If you've ever been over to Israel and you have been to Masada, there is a stronghold at the top of Masada. And a small group of Jewish radicals held that, the group of zealots held that fortress against the entire legion of Romans for almost a year. And you get there and you're like, well, how in the world could that be? You get there and you see the mountain. And you're like, oh. And then you crawl up the top. Well, actually, you don't crawl up the top unless you're crazy. And I've been crazy, so I've actually done that. But there's a much simpler way now. You just get in a cable car and you just go, and you go up there. Unless it's super crowded and somebody faints, which actually happened. And then there's chaos in the car and you're like, I should have taken the little snake trail. That's what they call it. Not sure why they call it the snake trail, but they do. So, bottom line, you get to the top, and then there is a fortress that Herod built up there. And you're like, oh, this would be pretty tough, even for the Romans. That's what God is saying here. I am a stronghold in the day of trouble, and I will acknowledge I'm intimately related to certain people, and when they seek me, I will bring them into the, the, the stronghold. And, and why is that? Because he is going to vanquish his enemies, but he will vindicate his honor. And, and he's going to do this by keeping his people safe while he exposes his rivals for what they really are. Look at verse 9 again. Who are you to plot against the Lord? He, God, will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. Verse 11. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. You remember we talked about that general, Rabsakeh, who came out stood against Hezekiah and said, let me give you all some advice. And Hezekiah's guys are like, hey, hey, listen. 
can we talk in your language? Because we understand Assyrian. Uh, don't talk in Aramaic or Hebrew because all the people there will hear you. And they're like, that's why we're talking in Aramaic. Because we want him to hear. And so Rabsakeh gets up and he denigrates Hezekiah and he mocks God. And he says, don't let your God in whom you trust deceive you. And Nahum says, there is a worthless counselor who came out of you. That's exactly who he's talking about. Well, what did God do to this worthless counselor? Hezekiah took that threat, you remember? And he went to the temple, and he knelt down before the Lord, and he put all of this before the Lord. And that night, God sent an angel into that Assyrian army. And before the sun rose in the morning, 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers were slaughtered. And they turned tail and they headed back to Nineveh. And by the time they got back to Nineveh, Sennacherib was in his temple worshiping his gods and his own sons in the very middle of his worship time came in and slaughtered him. The might of Nineveh's army, the thickness of Nineveh's walls, the bottomless wealth of Nineveh, and even the power and the beauty of the temples in which Sennacherib worship weren't enough to keep him safe from a God who said, I am against you. Remember what Paul said? If God is for us, who can be what? Against us. And that brings us to the next thing I think that Nahum teaches us, and that is God will gladden the nations. God will comfort His people. He will vanquish His enemies. He will vindicate His honor, and He will gladden the nations. Look at verse 3. Or chapter 3, verse 19. There is no easing of your hurt. Your wound is grievous. He's talking now to the king of Assyria. You can see that up in verse 18. All who hear the news about you will clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. You remember back earlier in the text, we read about uh, news that was coming, that was good news, that was coming on the mountains. The, the messenger would come. Well, in the ancient world, if you lived in a place like Israel or Judah, and you were one of the armed cities there, and you saw a messenger running, and you could see the dust of his sandals, or maybe the dust of his horse, and you knew that messenger was coming, usually the messenger had a message you didn't want to hear. And throughout the ancient world for, for decades, those messengers had come over the mountains with a message, and the message was, the Assyrians are coming. The Assyrian army is on its way. And the minute you heard that message, you knew exactly what that meant. It meant you were done. But this time, the messenger came with a different message. Assyria is done. And all of the nations that had been under the weight of this Assyrian dominance clapped. Why? Because their oppressor was done. You say, well, how in the world is that joy for the nations? Well, the king of Assyria, and you see him in verse 18. He's, that's the first time he's addressed. The king of Assyria represented his God. The God of Assyria had a shepherd. And the shepherd was the king. And the king's business was to mitigate the, the, the beauty and the power of the God to his people, whatever God it was that he worshipped. And the God of Assyria, Asher, was a particularly cruel God. And the king of Assyria fed his people the wine of sorrow and the bread of cruelty. And so the nation was oppressed. And so were all of the other nations. And when God defeated and deposed the king of Assyria, he was defeating and deposing the God who had created all of this cruelty. You can see that if you look carefully back in verse 14. God says, from the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. In other words, the king of Assyria that represented this incredibly cruel God, when I destroy you, I'm also destroying the God that you serve. 
It's interesting that once Nineveh fell in 612 B.C., the god Asher was never worshipped again by any other nation. The nations had many pagan gods that they worshipped, but this god was so cruel and so vile that when the king of Assyria was destroyed and the nation of Assyria fell, this god was completely eradicated. And God announces this way back in the day of Nahum. So God will vanquish his enemies and glad the nations. And then here's the final thing, and we'll be done this morning. God will rescue sinners who seek refuge. Verse 7 in chapter 1, The Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. God begins the prophecy by telling Nahum, I want you to tell the people that I'm good. In the midst of all of this wrath, in the midst of all of this punishment, in the midst of all of this vanquishing and destroying and cutting down, I want you to tell the people that I'm good. And I want you to tell the people that I'm a stronghold. And that I will give refuge, I will receive, I will know everybody who comes to take refuge in the stronghold. Now look at verse 18 of chapter Three, your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on a mountain. You know, if you go all the way to the New Testament in the book of Matthew, there is a great shepherd and a good shepherd who stands on a mountain giving a sermon to his disciples. And he looks out and he sees people who are like sheep scattered without a shepherd. You say, well, that was, that was Israel. I mean, that was, that was the good shepherd taking care of his own sheep. In fact, these sheep had been slaughtered earlier by the various Syrians that we're talking about. Well, Jesus in John 10 says, now there are other sheep that I have that are not of this fold. And you say, oh, no, 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 surely not Assyria. Well, in the book of Isaiah... Chapter 11, when Messiah comes, Isaiah says, there will be a highway. He will build a highway from Assyria to Jerusalem and God's people will travel on that highway. And then in chapter 19, there will be two other ancient nations who are going to travel with Israel on that highway to worship Yahweh. And those two nations are the two very nations that did the most damage to Israel, the nation of Egypt and the nation of Assyria. And in Isaiah 19, God says that He will receive glad worship from these three great nations. Listen to this. Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. You know what? In the midst of all of this judgment, God will show mercy to any Ninevite, to any Assyrian, to any Israelite, and to any one of us that will repent and will seek Him in His stronghold. We must behold the mercy of God and we must behold the severity of God. So this morning as we pray, and I'd like you to ask you to bow your heads as we close out our journey with Jonah and Nahum, have the things you feared in serving God come upon you? Have you been to that place in your life where maybe Jonah found himself and Nahum wondering, God, how in the world can I serve you the way I've been serving you and experience what you have allowed me to experience? And this morning, God says to you, I want to comfort you. I want to strengthen you. I want to help you. And maybe this morning, the thing God wants to say to you is this, in the midst of all of this chaos, in the midst of all this pain, in the midst of all of this pressure, I have a stronghold. And if you will seek me, and join me in the place of 
my dwelling, I will give you strength. Maybe you're here this morning and God has a different message for you. God looks into the life that you're living before Him and He sees pride and He sees arrogance. And He looks right past all of the things that you throw on the table to show your commitment to Him and He goes right to that place where there's a disobedience that His Spirit has been talking to you about and God says to you, I am against you. But if you repent, if you humble yourself, I will give you grace. And maybe this morning the message isn't just about the kindness of God, it's about the severity of God. It's about God cornering you in and boxing you in so that He can show you mercy when you repent. I know I've been there, and I don't think I'm the only one that's found myself next to Jonah on the hill. And now Nahum. And so this morning as we pray, I'm going to invite you to do one of two things. You would say to the Lord, Lord, in the midst of all of my trouble, in the midst of all this pressure, I want to trust you. I'm not going to lean on my own understanding. I'm going to do what Nahum did, and I'm going to trust you. And if you're here this morning and there's some area that you and God are talking about and you're wrestling about and you've got all of your defenses up, God is saying to you, I'm against you. I want to counsel you this morning as we pray. Would you just tell the Lord, Lord, you are the Lord of armies. And I want to run to you. I don't want you to make an end of me. I want you to make an end of my sin. And I want to repent. And I want to receive mercy. Lord, as we pray these two things, give us wisdom to know which one to pray at this moment for our own life. And Lord, as we Consider the work that you've done in the life of Jonah and now in the life of Nahum. Would you do that work in us? And we'll thank you that you sent a good shepherd, a great shepherd, to tear down every idol, to remove every vile thing from our lives so that we could stand before you clothed in a righteousness that didn't come from us. So Lord, as you granted repentance to the Ninevites, And as you granted repentance to the Israelites, would you grant repentance to us? Would you open our eyes? Would you help us to see that work that you are doing in us and respond to it humbly so that we might receive grace and mercy? In Jesus' name, amen.